Thank you for listening to Emmanuel Baptist Church's podcast. For more information about the church, please visit our website at www.emmanuelmanning.com. Thanks and enjoy the sermon. We're looking today at Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through Mark chapter 3, verse 6. Mark chapter 2, verse 23 through Mark chapter 3, verse 6. Follow along in your Bibles uh, as I read. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need? And was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the priest, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silenced. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched out his hand and was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. The Gospels uh, record at least five instances in which Jesus' view of the Sabbath was challenged by the religious leaders of Israel. And you think, big deal. Well, it was a big deal. Um, the Israelites were the Chick-fil-A of the ancient Near East. What do I mean by that? On every Chick-fil-A sign, it says welcome, and then at the bottom it says closed what? Closed Sundays. I worked at Chick-fil-A when I was in seminary. I loved that. Uh, you never had to work on a Sunday, and they said since their foundation, they wanted to be an organization that lets uh, people worship or rest uh, on uh, a day of the week. And interestingly enough, if you talk to people who follow statistics and finance in terms of fast food restaurants, uh, Sunday is normally the day of the week where restaurants make the most money, 20% of their income, and that's over seven days. And so it was a big risk. It's a risk that's paid off, but uh, I both love and hate that because, man, sometimes you just want Chick-fil-A on a Sunday and there ain't no go, is there? Well, in the same way, there were a couple of things that really characterized, gave identity to the people of Israel in uh, the ancient Near East. Uh, And one of them was that one day out of seven, they didn't do any work. Uh, Because in the ancient Near East, you worked most days. You had to work. Survival was difficult. You had to work. But the way that Israel was to demonstrate their trust in God and to be replenished and restored was with this day of the Sabbath. The other thing was circumcision. And it seems like me... 
That's weird that that would be a marker, but it was. I don't know how you check that or distinguish that way, but we'll just let that go. The Sabbath was an easy enough thing to notice that uh, all their Gentile neighbors worked. uh, And then one day in seven, the Jews rested. And so it was not just a command that God had given. It was for the Israelites in the Old Testament. It was a marker of their identity. It was a statement of their faithfulness. It was a big deal. And it's hard for us in a day and an age where uh, the idea of a sacred day, really everything is losing its sacred value uh, in our day, in our age. It's difficult for us to understand this. But God's people in the Old Testament were really concerned about the Sabbath. And what's going on here is they challenged Jesus so much on the Sabbath because it seemed like he was different even than them. It seemed like he was somehow less picky. And what this did is this really scandalized these Pharisees. Jesus has been having run-ins with these guys really since the beginning of chapter 2. But as they get to these Sabbath things and Jesus really begins to press them, this is getting right to the heart of their division, which is why in verse 6 it says the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. The Pharisees and the Herodians were two different groups in Israel. They were strange bedfellows, and yet Jesus had brought them together, and they were beginning to conspire against how they can kill him because they felt like, all right, if this guy begins to uh, step on the Sabbath, like he's stepped on so many other things that are sacred to us, uh, then we're going to lose our very identity. We can't have that. We, we need to get rid of this guy before he leads some kind of movement or revolt that changes the very nature of Israel. But that's exactly what Jesus was seeking to do. He was seeking to change Israel. He was seeking, as a matter of fact, to create a new one. And what Jesus runs into here is the same thing that many of us have either run into or that many of us are. And that is insecure people who don't know how to do anything better to fight their own insecurity than to make up a bunch of rules that they then watch to see whether or not you're going to break. And the thing is, in our day, it's an amazing thing. For the longest time, you could be describing people like that and you would think, well, those are those church-going old fuddy-duddies. But goodness gracious, our age is so insecure that we get easily offended about everything now, don't we? And it all stems from an insecurity that then creates a myriad of rules to keep things safe. And if you tread on that at all, boy, you're really causing trouble. And that same sort of impulse is found here in these Pharisees. And so as we look at today's text, I want to look at two points. Speaking around this idea of the Sabbath, the first is the scandalized legalists. That's who we're going to look at first. And then the second thing we're going to look at is the restorative Lord, the scandalized legalists and the restorative Lord. What do I mean by the scandalized legalists? Well, let's give the Pharisees a little bit of their due. They really, really loved the Torah. They loved the Old Testament. They put us to shame in their Bible memory. Our fighter verse last week was Romans 6, 23. What's the fighter verse this week? Come on, kids. Anybody know what it is? The one coming this week. Huh? 1 Corinthians what? All right, 1 Corinthians 1, 3. 
We need to jump on. Are y'all still doing fighter verses? Uh, Christina's like, you're being unfair. They work on it Monday, Drew. Tomorrow, never mind. All that to say, the Pharisees probably would have had big chunks of the first five books of the, of the Bible memorized. They loved the Bible. They, they loved the word. They, they, they considered Yahweh very important. It's just kind of how they considered him that was the problem. They, they didn't think of Yahweh as their father and their husband, their provider and their protector, their Lord and their king. Although they may have used those words, when you get right down to it, they tended to think of the Lord as uh, an anxious judge who's very, very easily offended. And even in your reading of the Old Testament, if you think God is very offended, it's because you know less about the Old Testament than you think. Now, Drew, I've read those parts in the Old Testament where he's calling down wrath. Well, if you knew about what the people were doing, and if you knew about how long he would be patient, you wouldn't be quite so grumpy. They thought that God was uh, a, a, a judge that, you know, an angry father, an angry husband. And so because of their misunderstanding of who God is and because of their own insecurity, when they saw a law like, you shall honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days shall you work and labor, but on the seventh day you should keep a Sabbath that's holy unto the Lord your God. When they saw that, they said, well, we better do everything possible so that we don't even come close to breaking that law because goodness gracious if we do. And so they came up with some mighty amazing stuff. You know the weird laws that you have in like various towns and states? You know, like I think in Idaho or something, oh, Iowa, it's illegal to chase after a greased pig, like that kind of stuff. Well, according to the Mishnah, which is kind of like their addendums, there were 39 classes of work that profaned the Sabbath, such as plowing, hunting, and butchering. And we get those. That's good. But you couldn't tie or loosen a knot. You couldn't sew more than one stitch. You couldn't write more than one letter. If you want to know how comprehensive their rulemaking was to protect the Sabbath, as if it was this fragile thing, listen to this. If a building fell down on the Sabbath, enough rubble could be removed to discover if any victims were dead or alive. If alive, they could be rescued, but if dead, the corpses must be left until sunset. Now, before we jump too high on that, we all got our stuff, don't we? I don't want to cast aspersions on these folks. Uh, I, I don't want to work away from the mindset that they had. The problem is, is that in making all of these rules, they completely destroyed the whole purpose of the Sabbath. Where it was no longer a day of joy and rest in the presence of the Lord. It was no longer a day where you could say, you know what, I'm going to trust God. I'm going to relax in his presence today with his people. And I'm going to believe that he's going to meet my needs. Instead, it became a day where you had to tippy-toe around all kinds of things. And in doing so, they subverted the whole purpose of the Sabbath. And Jesus wasn't a lawbreaker. He just didn't like any of their nonsense. Because he knew the whole purpose of why God gave the Sabbath. Because he was the Lord who gave the Sabbath. And when he came, he was going to undo what they said. And so Jesus on the Sabbath day, if there was a matter of need, then Jesus dealt with it. If there was a matter of mercy, then Jesus dealt with it. If you were hungry, then you picked people's grain and you eat it. By the way, that wasn't illegal. 
As long as you stay on the path and reach near the path, the Lord said you could take from anybody's land. I won't go into the fact that in America, because of all kinds of philosophical underpinnings that we don't understand, John Locke and others, one of the foundational premises of America is that what you work for, you own, which is by and large true. You just should know the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that what you work for, you by and large own, but that other people in your community have some right to it. Just throwing that out there. Take it up with the Bible. This scandalized the legalists. And so they approach Jesus and they say, why in the world are you doing what is not lawful on this day? And how does Jesus respond? He responds in a way that must have really got under their skin. Look at verse 25 in chapter 2. And he said to them, what? Have you never what? Of course we've read the Bible, Jesus. We probably memorized it and know it better than you. But what does Jesus do? He sticks them right at the heart. He says, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God at the time of Abiathar the priest, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. And also gave it to those who were with him. He goes back to the story of David. And this was uh, during David's desert fox years where he was on the run from Saul. uh, And one day he was hungry. And every Sabbath they took new bread and they put it. And this bread of the presence was in the tabernacle as a symbol that God would provide for his people. And according to the law, only the priests could eat it. And David and his men had been on the run. They were very hungry. And so David and his men came in and they ate that bread, which is only lawful for the priests and jesus is teaching us something there that we'll get to in a minute but for right now i just want you to see that whenever jesus had controversy jesus went to the scripture and goodness gracious shouldn't we do the same deacon that was well timed how many of us because we don't read or understand the Bible, uh, fall back on, well, it just seems to me, or when I was raised up, or the prevailing opinion is, or during this time period, uh, or this is how I feel. I'm not gonna say I don't care about how you feel. I do care about how you feel, It's just how you feel doesn't determine any truth, right? It's sort of like in our day. Just because you're offended doesn't mean I'm wrong. And just because I'm offended doesn't mean you're wrong. Your feelings of offense or my feelings of offense or me being scandalized by something is not an indicator of any truth other than how I feel. Uh, The fact that I was raised a certain way isn't an indicator of anything other than that's the way that I was raised. And as we don't understand the Bible, we kind of, in a small-minded way, fall back on that kind of stuff. And sometimes I just imagine the Lord down in heaven looking on us going, goodness gracious, I spent 2,000 years through 40 men over a long time writing a book that you could read. You should read it. And you're like, Drew, the Bible's hard. It is. It was written a long time ago. Words have different connotations sometimes. 
there are things that are difficult. But, but what are you going to do? Right? What are you going to do? Work is difficult, isn't it? Being married is difficult. Amen? But if something's worth it, what do you do? You do the work. And I can say this, acknowledging that it's hard, it's also not that hard. And so one of the things we need to do as believers in the Lord Jesus, as people of the book, right, is we need to read and understand and know the book. Sometimes people kind of sheepishly come up to me and go, I, I got a theological question I want to ask you as if I'm bored of those things. That means you're thinking. That means you're bothered. That means you're searching. I love that. I love that. When Jesus wanted to settle a dispute with the Pharisees, he didn't go to the Mishnah. He didn't debate them on their own ground. He went straight to the scripture and he taught them an important point. And I imagine how many things there are that we hold dear that the Bible really doesn't hold as dear as we hold dear. And I wonder how many things the Bible holds dear that we don't hold dear at all. And I'll give you, for instance, this morning in our Sunday school class, we're talking through James. And in James, last week, we looked at that verse that said, don't be a hearer of the word only who deceives themselves, but be a doer of the word, Right? And one of the questions that I got hit with this week is, well, when I think about not doing the word, what kinds of things don't I think about? Because immediately I think of all the kind of ways that I fail. And the amazing thing is that the, the primary way that James addresses it never crossed my mind because the very next word, James basically says, uh, if you don't bridle your tongue, your religion is worthless. Right? And so when he thought of a worthless hearer of the word only, he thought about the way people use their mouths. I felt pretty good about the way I've used my mouth. Or James goes on to say, they should keep themselves unstained from the world. And James goes on to say, and they should watch out for orphans and widows in their affliction. How are we doing there? You see what I'm saying? The Bible is the thing that we go to to change our view, to, to scrape away the barnacles of all of that. Well, that's the way I was raised. Just remember, the way that you were raised only indicates the way that you were raised. No truth, right? It's the Bible and the Bible alone. And so Jesus begins to settle this dispute about the Sabbath with the Bible. And we need to do that as well. We need to be in the word studying the word. Now, thankfully, you guys pay me money to not have to work so that I can, in a sense, study the word for you and bring it to you. Thank you, right? But that doesn't excuse you for your own need to read the Bible for yourself because I could be a liar. And you need to be able to call me on that as well. The Bible settles our disputes, which is why I've said it many, many times when I first got here. I haven't had to say it in a long time, let me say this again. If you're going to disagree with something that the elders and the deacons do here, please come. Please come with the Bible verse. Right? Please come with the Bible verse. Because we, we do the best we can to do what we do on the basis of the scriptures. And we might be wrong. Please show us on the basis of the scriptures. We're not experts but we all are in this together. And so the way that Jesus answers these uh, scandalized legalists is by taking them to the word again. And, and here, let's move into our second point where Jesus shows himself to be 
the restorative Lord. What do I mean by this? Well, the first thing that Jesus does is he's like, guys, you've made the Sabbath terrible. You've made it about not doing certain things. But what was the Sabbath about? Look at verse 27. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. What does he mean by that? God didn't make us to follow his rules. God made his rules to bless us. Right? God didn't make us to follow his rules. God gave his law, his instruction, his teaching to bless us. And Jesus says the Sabbath is a great illustration of that. God made the Sabbath for man. And one thing we need to bring into focus here and talk about for a minute is that Jesus kind of assumed the Sabbath. Notice what he doesn't say here. You guys have all these laws, don't worry. As soon as I'm raised from the dead, this thing's going to be meaningless. One day will be the same as another. And there is Bible teaching on that. I think Paul was trying to overcorrect bad thinking. But I do believe, I legitimately do believe that something like a Sabbath principle still carries on in our day. Because the Sabbath didn't start with the law of Moses. When did the Sabbath start? Creation. And what happened in that creation week is God gave a couple of perpetual things that were for the good of man. One was marriage between a man and a woman. The other was the Sabbath. And then there was the earth. I don't know if you know this or not, but if you're born on this earth, you're born rich. Because trees just grow food off of them. I mean, people have to work for it, but you understand what I'm saying? You're in a world that was made to bless you, and we've messed it up, and things are bad, and there are droughts, and sin has made an issue. Marriage is also good. Throw an amen up there, deacon. Marriage is also good. All right? Yes. And the Sabbath is good. The Sabbath is good. You're like, Drew, didn't Jesus do away with all that? He did away with certain legal aspects of it, but I don't think that Jesus completely abrogated the thing. It's, it's interesting in the New Testament because Paul will talk about Sabbaths in a way, and he'll say, for, for some, one day is not better than another, and he's, he's talking in specific context. And I, I certainly myself don't want to be a legalist about it, but I'll tell you what, in our day and age, it seems like if you believe in anything, you're a legalist. I was spent uh, some a weekend a few years ago with some solid Christians. Uh, and one of the people that I spent time with, her husband worked for the Miami Dolphins, poor guy, right, this year. Um, and, you know, I just asked a question. I'm a pastor. I, maybe I shouldn't have asked the question. I'm like, oh, so you work, you're probably, he's out most Sundays. He's like, yeah. I'm like, so what do you do for church? Assuming they went to a Saturday evening service or they were really faithful on Wednesday. She's like, well, we go when we can, but I don't want to be legalistic about it. You can be a legalist about going to church. Is going to church legalistic? I'm, no, it's not. The, throughout the New Testament, that's kind of assumed. And, and you know, if, if there's a Saturday night service and you work Sunday, okay, I understand that. But we, we've kind of completely lost the idea that God gave us a day of the week to rest. So we no longer treat Sunday differently. We treat Sunday from uh, 8.55 to 11.30 differently. 
I just wonder if that's right. Jesus said the Sabbath wasn't made, you weren't made for it. It was made for you. In other words, Jesus is saying, when God tells you to do something, he tells you to do something because it's good for you. I've never, I've never seen adultery work out the way that people think it will going in. And so when the Lord says, don't commit adultery, he's saying that for our good, right? Um, when the Lord says, honor your father and your mother, I've known some pretty crappy moms and dads. I've also known some children of those crappy moms and dads who were better people because they sought to obey God's word. God's word is not a weight. God's word is the way. God doesn't say do this um, you know, if you don't, well, he does say, if you don't do this, you'll die because you're disobeying him. But in, in more of an emphatic way, he says, do this and live. The reason that we obey God's word is because he's our father and our friend and our physician. And if you've got cancer and the doctor hands you a prescription uh, for some medicine, you go, legalistic nonsense. No, you don't do that, do you? You go get it filled because you're like, that guy wants me well. That's the way God's commands work. Jesus is the restorative Lord. He assumes that the original intention of the Sabbath was to provide true rest and restoration for his disciples. And throughout church history, Christians, yes, moved that to Sunday, but they kept the principle. I wonder, do you? Do you believe that you're weak enough that one day out of the week you need to decompress? Or, or do you see Sunday afternoon as an opportunity to make more money or to get further along? Or do you see Sunday as a day to stop, to enjoy my family, to enjoy my Christian friends, to enjoy being together around the word? I mean, when we were singing, oh, praise the name, and like we stopped and y'all were just a cappella, I could do that for a while. It's good to, it's good to be with you. I'm encouraged being here. That's the... the that's the idea behind go to church. Come someplace where you can be rightly encouraged. Now, what Jesus does here is he does give us a couple of limiting principles on the Sabbath, and they're interesting and worthy of note. The first thing that, that Jesus gives us is that the Sabbath, there are limits to it. The first is necessity. Do you see that? When David and his men were hungry, they went and ate the sacred bread because they were what? Hungry. And a real need trumps all of that ceremonial law, even in the Old Testament, right? Necessity. So like my wife was a nurse when I was in seminary. She worked with neonatal ICU babies, like the little, little preemies, who you couldn't shut down the NICU on Sunday, could you? You couldn't turn off the oxygen pump. She had to work. They needed care. There's all sorts of necessary things that need to happen. But one of the things that isn't necessary is probably a lot of the stuff that's keeping us from just resting on the Sabbath. But if it's necessary, that's a limiting principle. The other limiting principle that Jesus gives us here is not only necessity, but mercy. Mercy. In, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, Jesus goes into the synagogue, and there's a man there with a withered hand. Now, does it say he was bleeding and about ready to die? Was it, was it like absolutely required that Jesus fix this dude then and there? No, 
Could Jesus have kind of said, hey, buddy, come here, and like whispered in his ear, stretch out your hand? Could he have done it that way? Jesus was being, he was being outlandish in the healing of this guy to make a point to these Pharisees that fundamentally God is not some um, stodgy guy who keeps records of your law breaking so that he can throw down the thunder when you slip. That God's primary motivation, even in the Old Testament, is mercy. And mercy, Jesus says, trumps all of your Sabbath regulations. And so he brought the guy up in front of him and he said, stretch out your hand. I wonder if you and I couldn't take some time during a Sunday afternoon and do something that's merciful to someone. I went to my wife's grandfather's funeral, and I may have told you this before. Uh, my wife's granddad, King Joseph Brown is his name. That's where Benjamin gets his middle name, Benjamin King. He's one of the godliest people we've ever met. I've told you about him before. Every Sunday afternoon, or on Saturdays or during the week, uh, Miss Francis' grandma Brown would bake baked items, and on Sunday they would visit shut-ins and give them baked goods. So much so that their son David at King's funeral said, when I was growing up, I wished I was a shut-in. The Lord's Day is for rest for you. There, it's limited by necessity, and it's also a day on which to show mercy. Jesus came to fulfill the law on our behalf, right? Where we failed, he succeeded. And that's why he's the Lord. Jesus came to clear our guilt, right? Amen? He came to clear our guilt. He came to fulfill the law for us. But you know what else Jesus came to do? He came to show us that the hand that scribbled those Ten Commandments on those tablets of stone thousands and thousands of years ago, that was a hand that would be willing to bleed one of these days till it's perfect. He came to not only fulfill the law and to clear our guilt, he also came to show that the law is God's love and that it's not legalism when you believe that obedience is good. And even on things like the Sabbath, it's a good thing. You know what I do on Sunday afternoons? I fall asleep in my bed. I take a nap. And then I wake up and I come back here. Sunday is, in many ways, my favorite day of the week. The mornings are rough. But after, <laughs> that's a pastor's son, right? All right, trigger happy, you're off. And what Jesus is doing here in restoring this man to worship, because a man with a withered hand would not be allowed to go into the temple, and Jesus was saying, uh, on the Sabbath, on a day, I'm going to fix your hand so that you can worship God fully. Jesus is pointing forward to what he has won for us. And what has he won for us? Jesus has won that eternal Sabbath that is coming, that is prefigured every Sunday when we gather together and dedicate a day to the Lord. And the Lord more than he's sitting up there going, you sinner, not being in church, out there doing this or that, he's probably more going, you could use some rest. You could use some rest. You should take this day and rest. I'll provide for you. I'll take care of you. I'll meet your needs. You take one day of the week. You dedicate it to my worship. 
I'll restore you and fill you. And every Sabbath that we're together is Jesus's way and God's way of pointing to that eternal Sabbath that Jesus has won for us by dying on the cross for our sins and being raised for our justification, our innocence before God. And so this morning, if you're not a believer in Jesus, you probably don't like God's law because you think behind it is a frowning face that's just out there to squish you. And I'm telling you, the hands that wrote that law bled on a cross at Calvary for you, that Jesus came so that you might be forgiven of every way that you've disobeyed the Lord so that he might restore you to true worship and so that he might point you forward to that day when he's coming again to remake the heavens and the earth as a full Eden place of rest. And he's given us every Sunday together as a way to foreshadow that. And this morning, if you're not a part of that, I would invite you to come and participate in it. The way that you do that is by repenting of your sins, by repenting of the thought that you know better than God, that you make better plans, by giving over control of your life to the Lord and trusting in him completely. If you do that, the Bible says that God renders the verdict of not guilty before his throne over your entire life. He gives you his spirit that empowers you to obey his law, and he will take you fully home to rest. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, thank you for your law. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your help by your spirit in keeping it, that you change your hearts to see your intention and to see your goodness. Lord, thank you for Jesus who died for us, that we might be free and fully forgiven. And that your heart in all that you command us to do is our good. Lord, help us to believe that, we pray, in those moments when temptation lies. Because its lies are so believable. But Lord, we pray that your voice would be more powerful in our ears, through your spirit, in the word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.